0: guys to 1st uh, and 2nd Timothy uh, study. This is our second week. We did the intro last week and this week we're going to delve into 1st Timothy chapter 1. And I'm kind of a chapter girl, so um, before you start listening to this, I pray that you would get into God's word yourself and read 1st um, Timothy chapter 1. makes it come alive, I pray. I'm praying God's going to make it come alive through me. Let's open in prayer. Father I just ask that you would empty me of me. Lord, I'm insufficient and and not able or whatever in all my ways as you well know. Lord, just fill me with you to the fullness of you and Lord, I'm just available. So speak through me your word and your truth and make it come alive, Lord, so that we can apply it to our lives and be a changed people that, that we have been in your presence today, Lord, because the Spirit taught this lesson, and I ask this for your glory, and your glory alone, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul opens this letter to his beloved Timothy by giving us his credentials and stating his apostleship, meaning one who has was sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically commissioned and sent forth to proclaim his gospel throughout the world. Um, according to Acts 1, 21-22, an apostle had to be present during the earthly ministry of Jesus from his baptism by John to his resurrection and ascension. We had 12 apostles in the Gospel. Judas forfeited his place by his treachery. And in Acts, we discover that Matthias was elected to fill his slot, evidently by the Spirit's guidance through the uh, means of casting lots. It says, Acts 1 uh, one twenty-one through 26 states therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection so they proposed two men Joseph Calbert Barsabbas also known as Justus, and Matthias then they prayed Lord You know everyone's hearts. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Unlike the other apostles, Paul did not accompany Jesus during his earthly ministry, nor did he see the resurrected um, Lord before his ascension. But Paul did have a personal counter encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, in an amazing account of God's abundant grace, and was appointed to this ministry by Jesus Christ Himself as the last of the apostles, as stated in First Corinthians. And Paul writes, "For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance: that Christ died for our sins, according to Scriptures; that He was buried." That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to um, then to all the rest of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God I am, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. That makes me ask the question if God's grace to me is without effect. Are we thankful for what God has done for us? Paul's apostleship was not something he had sought. Indeed, he had been vehemently fighting against the way because of this he was often in the position of having to defend his authority to others. He had a reputation, and it wasn't a good one. His ministry was appointed to him through a heavenly command. Later in Timothy he states, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given at, in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith of the Gentiles to the Gentiles. Paul would become the greatest missionary in the history of the church and the author of a significant portion of the New Testament. I remember Jesus's words to um. Oh uh, my goodness, my mind's going blank. Um, uh, well anyway, when he was called to pray over Paul to, for his blindness, and he came to him and he said, uh, "Lord, you know this man. He's he's not a good man. He comes to kill. And he goes, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake." Jesus was called. Jesus called Paul. No surprise to God to study the scripture. He had not been elected by men, rather, divinely appointed to an authoritative representative of the risen and ruling Lord. And he passionately and unabatedly did his calling. Interestingly, we are all to be about our callings as well, with such a passion. Scripture tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do, Paul writes in Ephesians. As we walk in faith, God will provide the power to accomplish these good works through us. Always His power, always for His glory, always for our good. The one who gives the power gets the glory, Piper says. Eternal and lasting good works, not works merely done in the flesh, are only done through indwelling power of His Spirit and we, and are the works, only works that will be eternal. Fleshly works are never eternal. God does not own what mere flesh does. He will never do that. But I digress. Now back to Paul. Paul emphatically made his point about being an apostle when he said in verse 1 that his apostleship was by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Command. Here meaning a decree. It is interesting that Paul ascribed this command of apostleship to both the Father and the Son. Also, many are inclined to think of God as a judge rather than as a Savior. Ordinarily, we think of applying the title to the Lord Jesus Christ as it is most often used in connection with Him than with any other person of the Godhead. But it is blessedly true as well that God the Father is our Savior as certainly as God the Son. Remember, it was God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3, 16 tells us. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross did not enable God to love men. It was the expression of the love of God toward men. First John tells us, this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Christ Jesus, of course, is our hope of salvation, righteousness, sanctification, abundant life now, and life eternal. We rest in His finished work on the cross. Interestingly, in all of Paul's writings in Scripture, only First and Second Timothy have this greeting, grace, mercy, and peace. The others simply have grace and peace. Further, all the others excepting Titus were written directly to churches, while First and Second Timothy were written to an individual. To Timothy. Individuals need mercy. Individuals are conscious of their failures. They are conscious of their need of special divine help. The addition of mercy adds the element of relieving affliction, alleviating suffering or distress, easing misery. It is the concrete expression of pity and compassion undertaking to mollify, to soothe the anger of, or remove the suffering. Perhaps timid Timothy was having a very difficult time addressing the false doctrines in the church, which were so rampant in Ephesus, where he was ministering. Paul loved Timothy dearly, calling him his true son in the faith, and was greatly concerned for him and desirous of encouraging him in his ministry. Spurgeon writes to us in his morning and evening using the verse Psalm 61-2 I call as my heart grows faint lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Most of us know what it is to be overwhelmed in heart feeling as empty as a dish which has been wiped and turned upside down submerged and thrown on our beam ends like a vessel mastered by the storm. Discoveries of inward corruption will do this if the Lord allows the great depth of our depravity to become troubled and cast up mire and dirt. Disappointments and heartbreaks will do this when billow after billow rolls over us, and we are like a broken shell hurled to and fro by the surf. Blessed be God, that at these times we are not without an all-sufficient solace. Our God is the author of Weather-Beaten Sails, the Hospice of Forlorn Pilgrims. He is higher than we are. His mercy is higher than our sins, His love higher than our thoughts. It is pitiful to see men putting their trust in something lower than themselves. But our confidence is fixed upon an exceedingly high and glorious Lord. He is a rock. Because he does not change, and a high rock, because the tempests which overwhelm us roll far beneath his feet. I love the scripture which in 18 of uh, Psalms says, He is a rock, his, no, Deuteronomy, excuse me. He is a rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. He is not disturbed by them, but rules them at his will. If we get under the shelter of his lofty rock, we may defy the hurricane. All is calm under the protection of that towering cliff. Alas, such is the confusion in which the troubled mind is often cast that we need piloting to this divine shelter. Hence the prayer of the text, O Lord our God, by your Holy Spirit, teach us the way of faith. Teach us, Lord. We don't know it. Teach us. Lead us into your rest. The wind blows us out to sea. The helm does not respond to our puny hand. You, you, you alone can steer us over the bar between submerged rocks which lie ahead and safely into the fair haven. How dependent we are upon you. We need you to bring us to you. To be wisely directed and steered into safety and peace is your gift and yours alone. This night, be pleased to deal well. With your servants. How often we, we need that. False teaching in the church has always been difficult to deal with, and Timothy was facing that head on. Remember, the church was God's idea, it's not man's. It has always belonged to God, and it is not ours to run it, it is His. The church's marching orders were given by King Jesus himself, and we dare not forget that he is the head of the church. Paul was relaying to Timothy God's will through God's word, which is always God's way. God's will through God's word is always God's way. He will never go contrary to his revealed will. God never does. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, while by any, in any means just appear from the law until everything is accomplished, he writes in, in Matthew, Jesus writes. The psalmist adds, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Again, Psalm 119, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. The church has a guidebook, and that guidebook is the word of God. The old hymn by Samuel Stone says it well, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her, To be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. The lyrics to Ancient Word by Michael Smith also come to light. which says, Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope. Give us strength, help us cope. In this world, where'er we roam, ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient word impart. Holy words of our faith, handed down to this age, came to us through sacrifice. Oh, heed the faithful words of Christ. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart, ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient word impart. This, of course, is um, not only true for the church at large, but for each individual as well. Further, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ can only be accomplished through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is impossible to muster it up in the flesh, which is true that every Christian possesses. Paul tells us in Romans, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. We are called to obey God's Word and conform to His will, both individually and corporately, as the body of Christ. We are left to be His light pointing others to him. And what a sorry job we have often done. Our obedience to his revealed will is not only for others, but it is for us as well. That is our way to the abundant life that he promises and, and to which he greatly desires for all of us to possess. This was Paul's great concern for the church at Ephesus. They were wandering from his will. And he writes to Timothy to stand up against the rampant false teaching found there. Don't just put up with it. Stand up against it. Ephesus was a city that was filled with paganism and rampant immorality and idolatry. And because of these cultural pressures, Paul's first concern was to tell Timothy that he must keep people from teaching false doctrine. From teaching what their itching ears wanted to hear. The summons is clear. Address anything and everything that pulls people away or distracts from the pure milk of the gospel. Timothy was to guard the gospel of truth. We, too, are called to guard the gospel in our spheres of influence, which means not deviating from the truth, not trying to water it down to make it say what we want it to say. We guard it by the way we use God's Word. There are two ways in which we are not to use God's law. Not to use God's law. We are not to add to the law's demands. In verse 4, Paul talks about the myths and genealogies taught by the false teachers. These false teachers are taking extra-biblical writings that include stories and myths about differing Old Testament figures, And they were using these writings to add to God's Word. In essence, they were putting rules and regulations on God's people that are not in the Word of God. Not too dissimilar to the religious Pharisees Jesus confronted, Paul uses two words to describe these false teachers' actions. Myths, meaning a tale, fable, fabricated by the mind and set over against what is real, used to depict a lying fable with all its falsehood and all its pretenses, cunning fables for the purposes of deceiving. And the second one was endless genealogies, meaning the use of Old Testament genealogies as a source of fanciful tales and imaginative lore created by rabbis using a highly allegorical method of interpretation. Outlandish stories and legendary personalities which were supposedly hidden in the text and purportedly discovered by clever rabbis using this allegorical method. The second way in which we're not to use God's law is we must not think the law saves. The law does not save. These false teachers in Ephesus, along with the others in the first century, were teaching that obedience to the law, even some extra-biblical laws, could help someone earn the favor of God. This teaching has been rocking right along since the first century and persists today. Of course, most false teachers do not come right out and say that one must earn their salvation. And sometimes they may even think they are promoting a more righteous standard for God's people. However, when you veer off from God's gracious work in the gospel, we pervert it. The idea that by doing certain works, following certain rules, or observing certain laws, you can earn God's favor runs counter to the biblical gospel. Isaiah's words are appropriate here. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All, a very inclusive word. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Isaiah 64, 6. This is not to say that there are not blessings in obedience and consequences to sin for the child of the king. Rather, our obedience will not save us. Our obedience reflects we are his and we love and trust him. Christ alone saves the sinner. It is always Christ alone. When God's law is used in the wrong way, the results can be disastrous. It is even ever the object of the devil to obscure the truth and get Christians occupied with something that will hide the glorious face of the Lord Jesus Christ and cloud the truth regarding his finished work. Furthermore, It is the whole Bible that the Christian needs, not simply picking and choosing a few verses that are palatable to us. Tozer writes, The Word of God well understood and religiously obeyed is the shortest route to spiritual perfection, and we must not select a few favorite passages to the exclusion of others. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. Paul claims, that a wrong use of God's law was producing arrogance and ignorance among those who teach. These teachers were making confident assertions about things they did not even understand. Arrogance and ignorance is a very dangerous combination indeed. They're dangerous enough by themselves, but together they're really lethal. It produced confusion and deception among those who hear what the confused espouse. God detests false teaching. He always has from Genesis to to Revelations because it leads his people astray, which leads to death and decay. Ezekiel tells us, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imaginations, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord said. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the breaks in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle in the day of the Lord. Their visions are false and their divinations a lie, they say, the Lord declares, when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they expect their words to be fulfilled. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say, the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord said, Because of your false words and your lying visions, I am against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will not belong to the council of my people, or be listed in the records of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Sovereign Lord. Believers also need to be aware of systems that do not build up our souls by focusing on things in Scripture that are not as clear and leave room for differing opinions, non essential so to speak. For example, when Jesus is returning, he has given us signs to look for, but not a specific date. These types of things only serve to Christians occupied with unprofitable questions. There are some people who simply delight to argue, John Bunyan says, some love the meat, some love to pick the bones. Mm -hmm. Philippians tells us, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may uh, boast that I do not run or labor for nothing on the day of Christ. That which builds up the people of God is heart occupation with Christ. Let your heart be occupied with Jesus, his ways, his words, his dealings with others. If we are taken up with him, he will become increasing, we will become increasingly like him, which, of course, is the desire for God for all the, his children. Christ is our standard of righteousness. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He tells John right before he was baptized, The word of God reveals him as our example, and we seek to walk as he walked. He is our head. The consistent believer seeks to be like him, so to love as he loves and to behave as he would, behave through his power, for his glory, for our good, always, for all of it. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Whoever claims to live in him, John tells us, must walk as Jesus did. The law was given to show us our sin. Interestingly, the list gives, in to verse, gives in us into verses 9 through 11, seem to correlate with the ways we tend to break the Ten Commandments. The law shows us what is good, and God uses this realization to restrain us from evil, which leads to destruction. Which always leads to destruction, as every sin carries with it a death sentence, death to something. The law points us to the truth and makes our rebellion apparent, which is an essential part of our salvation. Okay, I just remembered Ananias. I know this is ridiculous, this is how my brain works, but Ananias came to Paul and. Jesus came to Ananias before he came to Paul and said, Ananias, Ananias, go to Straight Street and pray over this man Paul. And then Ananias said that, Lord, don't you know he's been killing all your people? He goes, Go, I will show you him how much he's gonna suffer for my name. Just a little interjection on that. And I know y'all probably totally (laughs) forgot what I was doing, but anyway, it came to my mind. We are sinners in need of a savior, every single one of us. We are imperfect people. And if you don't know you're a sinner, you don't realize your need for a Savior. But now, it says in Romans 3, 21, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets all testify. The law testified to the righteousness, a righteousness which we could never do in ourselves. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. Oh, I just went to that. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The law does not save us. The law leads us to Jesus. Again, it is Christ who saves us. And it says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. This is in Corinthians as well. We try to persuade men. We know what it is to fear the Lord. So we, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live for him, for themselves, but not for him, who died for them and raised again. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though so once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through us. <clears throat> therefore, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The law is a hammer. That breaks the proud heart and obstinate hypocrites, Martin Luther writes. The humbling and bruising bring us into the arms of grace. Just like the the prodigal that came back to the running father. We find grace in the gospel of Christ. Lastly, the law functions to show God's will for the saved. It instructs us. It reveals his character and shows us how to love God and to love our neighbor. The indwelling of the powerful Holy Spirit gives us both the desire and the ability to to obey God's precepts. We, in our natural flesh, have no desire nor ability to do that. Rather than being a crushing hammer to God's people, it becomes our divine guide to life in the full, our ever-flowing living water, our divine decrees, with, which with the Holy Spirit illuminates to us, God is not a killjoy. It is sin that kills joy. His will is good, pleasing, and perfect, albeit it can be quite difficult. That is why in verse 5, Paul tells Timothy the motive against the false teaching was love. God's motive behind everything he does for us is love, whether we feel like it or not. Indeed, sometimes this way can feel like the very breaking of your own heart. Kara Tippetts, who finally succumbed to cancer, wrote, my hope is not in a cure today. My hope is not in the absence of suffering and comfort returned. My hope is in the presence of the one who promises never to leave me or forsake me. The one who declares nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Your story is a good story. In the grief, in the pain, and in the hard, it's a good story. The author has a plan for you. It may feel like a desperate breaking of your very heart, but suffering is not the absence of God or good. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He who has ears, let him hear this. Let him hear. Everything comes from love. Everything is motivated by love. That is his MO. God does nothing without this goal in mind. Nothing. We want to be a people who love God and love others. Out of the overflow of a pure heart and a good conscience with sincere faith. Only the gospel produces this kind of response. Flesh cannot. Paul now turns to talk of his gratefulness over the grace God has freely given him as a chief of sinners. Erupting into his personal testimony, leading him to triumphant praise. Michael Yusuf writes... Regarding praise. Our lives are vessels of praise to the Lord, our to be. When we make a commitment to obey God, we honor and praise Him with our obedience. It's honoring Him because it shows that we trust that He has our best interest at heart. Our prayers are offerings of praise to God and express our devotion. When He shows kindness to one when we show kindness to one another, we are living lives of praise and reflecting His love to others. Satan hates praise. And he will do anything that's not to him. And he will do anything to stop us from glorifying God. Anything. He knows that God indwells the praises of his people. He also understands the power of praise and thanksgiving. When our eyes are set on Christ through praise, we will gain a mighty victory. As we submit our lives and our hearts to Jesus Christ, praise changes the atmosphere of our trials. That is true. Those who know the secret of praise understand that feelings of depression, fear, doubt, and worry vanish in the wake of prayer and praise. Feelings of bitterness, resentfulness, and fear flee when praise and gratitude towards the Lord for who He is and for what He has done. Our praise to God acknowledges His authority over our lives. This is because in times of praise we submit ourselves to Him for His glory and purpose. Our humility and courage to trust God demonstrate our dependency on Him alone. Even a few words of praise from the overflow of a humbled heart can be a sweet aroma to the Lord, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Express your love and devotion to the Savior and your gratitude for His faithfulness by praising Him daily. And in the midst of Paul's praise, he gives us one of the most concise, clear, and compelling descriptions of the gospel in all of scripture. It's powerful. Pregnant sentence that encapsulates the gospel in just nine English words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here we learn about the gospel the grace of God and the glory of God. First, we learn that Jesus came into the world. The word came teaches us that the gospel of God is incarnational and undeniable. Jesus didn't come into being in Bethlehem, he already existed as the second person of the Trinity, the pre existent eternal Son of God, who was there with the Father and the Spirit before the foundation of the world. John tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus committed the ultimate act of condescending grace, coming into the world as a baby born in Bethlehem. <laughs> Amazing. His great glory, donning the robe of human flesh, had it not bust open wide. This is the incarnation Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did he do this? Why did he do it? Why? Christ came to live the life we could not live or ever live, to die the death we deserve to die and to rise in victory over the enemies, we could not conquer sin and death. There's no greater wonder in all of history, and yet Paul tells us that it is true. This is very good news indeed. I'm afraid that we hear it so much that we take it for granted. Unlike the myths and speculations of the false teachers, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is reality. This is undeniable. The gospel of grace is universal and personal. Christ came to save sinners, each and every one who would embrace the gospel fully. And Paul tells us that he was at the top of the list. Interestingly, before his encounter with Christ, Paul was persecuting vehemently the same churches he wrote his letters to. He was seeking to wipe them off the map. He oversaw the first Christian martyr, giving his stamp of approval and devoted his life to arresting, imprisoning, and killing Christians everywhere that he could until he encountered the risen Lord and everything changed. Everything. Amazing. God caused his grace to overflow to the one person who seemingly deserved it the least. Paul's story tells us a lot about the nature of God's grace. Thankfully, we learn that the grace of God is unconditional for there was nothing in Paul's actions to draw God to him, More, more likely to repel him from him. Paul's salvation originated in God and God alone. And the same is true for each one of us. We are not saved based on any condition in us, rather we are saved solely on account of sovereign grace in God. His grace is unconditional. God's grace is also purposeful. The grace produced faith and love in Paul's life, but further still, it demonstrates God's very long patience with us. We must never think we, or anyone else for that matter, are far out of reach for God's grace, are too far out of reach. It always goes further still. If we think we're beyond the mercy of God, hear this. God chose to take the chief persecutor of the church and make him his chief missionary in the church to show he is patient, that he loves, and that he beckons sinners to believe in him for eternal life. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter whatever, these words are worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I don't take this lightly. Indeed, some people may be out there that that don't know the Lord. And if that is you, simply all you do, need to do is, is, is pray and ask Him, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. Come into my life and save me. And He will do this. He will do this. Not only does God's grace demonstrates his patience, it leads to our praise of him as well. Paul's response to God's grace is worthy of emulation. Indeed, a grace-filled heart can't help but, but praise. Now to the king eternal and mortal invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In 1 Timothy 1.17. God is so totally other. And He is so worthy of our praise. He is the King of the ages, now and forevermore. He is immortal. He never grows tired or weary in his understanding no one can fathom. He never changes. Death and decay cannot and will not ever touch Him. He is beyond the limits of what we can see or imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. No one can compare to Him. There is none like Him. He is the only God, and he will receive honor and glory forever and ever, ever and ever. Though opposition and challenges come, God is the king of the ages, and he will lead, guide, protect, purify, sanctify, and preserve his church. You can take that to the bank. As believers in Christ, in our generation, in our little speck on his timeline, we must fight heartily for the gospel. As Paul exhorted Timothy, we must engage in battle for the sake of the truth. Holding on to our faith and with a good conscience, to make his point, Paul uses two examples, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom we know were among the false teachers at Ephesus, and men who had wandered from the truth of the gospel. Many commentators believe these men were elders in the church, and an indication that no one is immune to the temptation to wander away. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We fight for the gospel in two ways. One, we fight for it in our own lives. The Bible says we are in a war. Believers will battle the darkness, and it will affect our lives, our marriages, and our families. And indeed, it will. The battle is raging all around us. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms are active, and they are warring against our very souls in Ephesians 6:12, We battle Satan, we battle self, and we battle the world. The devil and all the minions of hell will seek to entice us with deceptions and incite divisions among believers because they do not want the gospel to resound in and through our lives, our marriages, our families, or any other area for that matter. Furthermore, the battle will look differently in each life. We are not to be caught off guard. We are to be, and we're not to be fearful. Rather, we are to be prepared. Know the word. Know the truth of the word. Know the promises. Don't be ignorant. You are responsible for your own life. You are responsible to study and, and show yourself approved into God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, one that can correctly handle God's word and God's truth. We are to know the truth and stand fast in it. We are in a war, and we are to fight the good fight of faith. Through his power, for his glory, standing strong amid all the challenges that come from outside and inside. And there will be. We are to keep the faith with a good conscience, which means we keep our accounts short with the Lord. You will fall, and when you do, quickly turn and repent. The longer you wallow in the pig pen, the worse it gets. Turn quickly and repent. Keep your accounts short. Confess your sins in turn it is impossible to hold the faith if one is not careful to maintain a good clear conscience before the lord whatever the spirit is working on in your life deal with it it'll keep coming to mind as you read in your scriptures even if it's not talking about it it seems to come to mind don't wait it doesn't get any easier i promise you believe me in this we second point is we fight for the gospel in our churches Paul speaks of handing Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan in verse 20, almost certainly referring to excommunication from the church. We can read more about this in Matthew 18, 15-20, and 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5. through 5. This was a very solemn charge which the apostle Paul gave to his son in the faith. People may wonder why such men have apostatized from the truth of God, which at one time they professed to love. Indeed, the wording have rejected literally means a strong, deliberate thrusting away. I'm done with this type of thing. Theological era is often rooted in moral failure. Theological era is often rooted in moral failure. They don't want to believe that. If we were able to look into the lives of these men, we would find that somewhere along the line they failed to respond to the call of God and they put away a good conscience, a clear conscience as they were playing a game. They lost the ability to appraise rightly doctrinal principles and eventually they found it a relief to give up the truth they once so ardently proclaimed. Make no mistake about it. We do not fall suddenly into grave error. We are more like a frog in a pot of boiling water. Such failure is the result of permitting the conscience to become denied so that it no longer registers as it once did. Conscience is literally a co-perception. It is that which is within us enabling us to distinguish between right and wrong. It is the moral law written on our hearts. It is our sense of ought. It is actually in knowing with oneself, meaning in knowing with oneself. It is acquired by the fallen Eden as there was no need to monitor unfallen Adam without evil, about evil. Conscience needs to be... Instructed by the Word of God, the conscience may act vehemently as Paul's conscience did against the infant church, but it was misguided by untruth. We don't want to be misguided once he met Jesus, the Word made flesh he turned ninety degrees in the opposite direction. Our conscience will accuse or excuse us according to the light we have. We have all we have always re- we must always remember that sin hardens. And that the conscience can become seared as with a hot iron where it no longer responds. In this state, men can commit the most wicked and heinous and abominable things with apparently the least exercise of consciousness. As believers, we are responsible to walk before God with a clear, good conscience. Ask Him when you pray, Lord, point out anything in me that makes you sad and help me to change it with your power. It is very dangerous to trifle with conscience, for if we act contrary to this inward monitor, we find the reaction becomes less and less. You know, if you're on a diet and you eat one little half of a cookie, well, it's not so hard to eat the other half and then the whole bag, right? Until eventually there's no reaction to it at all. It is then we are likely to become like a shipwreck of the faith. In the case of these two men, they were excommunicated from Christian fellowship. And put back into the world that they might learn not to play fast and loose with that which was what God had revealed. These two men had professed to know and love Christ, but they departed from the truth. The apostle commanded that they be put outside the fellowship of the church of God. In other words, thrown back into the world, which at one time they professed to have forsaken. The motive was love and that the discipline was with a view towards Restoration. Always love has a view towards restoring the other one back. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved in the days of the Lord. Lord, keep us from straying from your truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, just thank you for your word and how powerful it is and how effective it is on our on our hearts. And I just ask that you would help us to take it into our our lives and assimilate it, that we may walk as Jesus walked and that we may leave his aroma to every encounter and all of our spheres of influence for your glory, Lord, and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.